another episode of Beyond the Block. Thank you guys for joining us. Yeah, um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been Derek. To put it lightly, it's been it's been a rough week for us, hasn't it? Right, it has. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me just go down the list here. There's um there's one big story, but before we get to that, I just wanted to acknowledge the great Toni Morrison has uh, passed away this past uh, passed away this week. She passed away on Monday, and um, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner, Nobel Prize winner, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, author of Song of Solomon, and all around goddess. You know, mm-hmm. like. Just such a great loss, especially during this particular time in America's history. It it was just a hard loss to take at this particular time. Um, I, I personally didn't, like, I've heard her name, but I didn't really get to know her work at all until, like, just a few years ago. She was mentioned in uh, one of the other books I was reading. I think it was uh nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, that she was mentioned, and that's what put me on her originally. Um but yeah, man, like I, it's been a fairly recent thing to be put on her as both a black icon and an author. And there's nothing I can say about her as a person, like, or an author or an educator that won't be a gross oversimplification. But just everybody out there know that we lost an icon. She was a voice and through her work will, and she will remain a voice through her work. So, um. You'll learn much from her work about black America, particularly about the struggles and trials of black women in a way that will certainly quicken your pulse. So if that's your thing, I definitely encourage you to pick up a few of her works. And uh, I think I mentioned it already, but her most popular one, I believe, is Song of Solomon. So, um, yeah, get to know this woman and uh, honor her legacy by, you know, obviously getting familiar with who she was and her work, but uh, also the things she spoke about. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. Right. I imagine people will be reading what she wrote for many years to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that was that's one thing. And I think the uh, big story, I think the only bit of news either of us have um, are, are, are these shootings in uh, Dayton, El Paso this past week. Like two shootings within what, like 14 hours of each other? Like quick. Right. S- pretty yeah. Quick and then succession. there's the sh- the shooting in California, the one in El Paso, and the one in Ohio, all within a few days. Yeah, that's nuts. So, Garlic Festival, Walmart, and uh, where was this one in Dayton? I don't recall. I was about to say, I don't remember much about that location for uh, for Dayton, but, you know, there's, um, you know, two, two things really got to me about these shootings. Um, but I do want to lead with, I suppose, what's an honorable mention uh, we've had three high-profile mass shootings in the last week, all within a few days of each other, and uh, all of them, I believe, were committed by white men, and at least one of them is a demonstrable white supremacist. Right. So uh, that that's the first thing. But uh, the real first thing I wanted to mention was that the church was silenced on all of these shootings. One of the shootings has ample evidence suggesting that the shooter is a white supremacist, and the church didn't say anything about that. No words of consolation for those lost, no condemnation of white supremacy, no call to the U.S. government to do something. And on the heels of this NAACP convention that President Nelson just spoke at, the lack of any kind of statement on events where race was clearly a factor, this was yet another missed opportunity for the church to say something meaningful to the end of, quote, building racial and ethnic harmony, as they said in that press release. 
And uh, the second thing that stood out to me is that there really seems to be a heightened general anxiety surrounding gun violence than ever before. Like, I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime. Like, for example, in New York, there was a motorcycle that backfired in Times Square, and people ran for their lives because they thought somebody had opened fire. Yeah, I heard about uh, that. Yeah, you heard about that. And just this past Sunday, I was at church. It was fast and testimony meeting at my ward. And uh, a young white male in regular clothes who was visiting the ward got up to bear his testimony. And for two seconds, I searched for the nearest exits and got ready to either run or scrap, you know, like the country. I've just never been in this kind of situation or this mindset where I'm literally on guard for another mass shooting or for another shooting period like the country feels like a a war zone and i'm just extremely concerned that this is how i feel in it personally um yeah Yeah. well i'm i'm actually not particularly afraid of dying you know i have a hope in the resurrection and if if someone kills me well god's gonna give me a better body in the end so I, it's, I'm not making a joke. I'm actually grounding my experience in what I know to be deepest about that this mortal life isn't the end. And I said to one of my, uh, so here I'm working with a number of Chinese students and teachers. And I said this just a few days ago. I said that if I die in a mass shooting, then I don't have to pay back my student loans. And one of my one of my Chinese coworkers said, "That is the most American thing I've ever heard." Yep, that's it's a pretty American thing. It is. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, like what Jesus said. We should be afraid. We should not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but those who can kill the soul. And no one can kill my soul. Yeah. I think we've got three things going on here. Uh, the twinning of white supremacy, toxic masculinity, and access to guns. All three of these combine in a very nasty conspiracy. And I don't know if white supremacy was involved in the Dayton shooting, but definitely, you know, toxic masculinity is there. We have Mm -hmm. young men, typically young white men, who are entitled to a sense of, of violence and aggression as part of part of how they see the world or how they respond or how and I think there's a little bit of a homophobia in this too because we make we make it so that straight boys the only ex- emotion they can show is anger any other emotion they show gets coded as feminine and if we don't let um our boys have other ways of looking at the world and other ways of expressing their emotions in a healthy and responsible way we've all we've left got left is aggression mm. i'm not Sorry. i'm not saying that this is the whole explanation at all but i'm just saying this is one symptom of what's going on here oh absolutely uh speaking of symptoms and uh the most american thing you've ever heard a, a lot of attention has been given to our president because the manifesto of the el paso shooter includes his rhetoric pretty verbatim and uh you know, while while 45 certainly has emboldened people like the El Paso shooter and he should be held accountable for that, I, I can't lay the burden of that sin solely at his feet. This 
video that's been making the rounds on social media of Eddie Glaude Jr., the chair of Princeton's Department of African-American Studies. He, he had some comments a few days ago about the shooting that really resonated with me. He had some thoughts about what led to it, and he said something along the lines of, 45 is simply a manifestation of the problem, not, not the source. Right. We are right. the problem. This is who we are. We are a nation that produces and allows white supremacy to flourish, and we are a nation in constant denial about that fact. We've allowed ourselves to simultaneously believe in our own greatness while ignoring glaring evidence to the contrary. This is America. Like, pretense, capitalism, white supremacy. This is America. This is us. That is the answer to the question, why does this keep happening? That is the rebuttal to this isn't who we are. Because, you know, we be we be hearing that a lot as well. Yeah. So, yeah, man. And I want to talk about people's reactions because there's a lot of double standards. First of all. Yes. It's it's amazing that when you ki- if you're a white, white male and you kill a whole bunch of people, somehow the police are able to capture you alive and not be yep. afraid of their life and yep. kill you. When we have um, young black be- men and boys holding a toy gun that all of a sudden white cops are afraid of them and have to kill them within two seconds. This just n- does not make any sense. No. It really uh, people who not. think that there's, there's that, that, that these things aren't racist, this, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And there's also this double standard. If there's a white shooter, okay, so suppose you have a, a, a Mexican shooter, people will say, oh, you've got to build a wall. If there's a Muslim shooter, they'll say, oh, we have to have a Muslim ban. If there's you know, a black shooter, they'll say, we need more guns and more cops and more whatever. But when there's a white shooter, their response is, oh, thoughts and prayers. You know? Yep. It's Lone wolf, mental health issues. Yeah, or now that, let's talk about that too because now our, um, people with mental health challenges are being scapegoated here and blamed for this yep. when yep. that's not at all should be the forefront because and one fact of this is a you've got mental illness in other countries as well but you don't have the same uh, epidemic of mass shootings and also even in this country women and men typically have about the same rates of mental illness but when Mm -hmm. you look at our mass shootings you would expect if it's mental illness is the most important variable that you would have an equal number of uh, women and men as the perpetrators, but we don't. It's like 99.5% men. And we have to look at what's going on here. I just want to bring in something from the Book of Mormon real quick. There's a lot of warfare in the Book of Mormon, and so you might think, oh, look, it's, it's about warfare, but it's actually teaching you a lesson, a very pacifist lesson, because what the Book of Mormon teaches is that violence and weapons never promise the peace. Or, I mean, they never give you the peace that they promise. Mm. Because what it does is it just get, leads into a cycle of more devastation and more retaliation. And the only thing that brings peace is a lasting, deep change of heart, which we see with the coming of Christ in Third Nephi. But other than that... Warfare never delivers what it promises in the Book of Mormon, and we should. And weapons never deliver what they promise. And another irony is, you know, we've got these pro-life people and these pro-family people, which they take those phrases to mean one very narrow thing. Yeah. But I think safety in public is a pro-life issue. Certainly. Right. 
And same thing with pro-family. If people are killed, that's not pro-family. You know, people, yeah, I think I think we need to broaden under, our understanding of pro-life and pro-family to encompass actual meaningful repentance, if I can use this. Because, you know, the Bible and the Book of Mormon both teach that nations will be judged as a whole based on how they set up their society. Mm. It's not just an individual thing. Like, entire nations are lifted up or destroyed based on how they live among one another. And we have to take that into account when we look at how America treats its poor, uh, treats its immigrants, how we treat our children, how we, uh, and whether we let people have access to weapons of warfare the way we do. Whole thing is a mess. Whole thing is a mess. All right. Uh, do you want to say anything else about those shootings? No, I've said kind of what I wanted to say. All right, cool. Well, let's let me just say another thing is, you know, growing up, we see movies with guns. We see, you know, cowboys with guns. We see all these guns in our culture. And what I've realized about our culture is that, and I'm not the first person to say this, but we as an American society are more disturbed by two men holding hands than by two men holding guns, which is completely backwards. Mm. Be because one is um, about love and connection. The other is about force and violence. And we should be more disturbed by a picture or an advertisement that has two men holding guns. But unfortunately, we have yeah. that backwards. There's also a pattern of uh, valuing you know, our right to have these weapons rather than the lives of those who have perished at perished by these weapons. Um, we have, I, I, I've lost count of how many of these mass shootings we've had. And after each of these mass shootings, there is a brief moment of reflection and a call to look at our gun laws, but then nothing ever happens. And we just let history keep repeating itself because Second Amendment rights and all that other stuff. You know, there is some room that ought to allow for us to be able, or rather there should be some room for us to be able to have a look at those laws so that we can at least curb these particular issues. But I just wanted to bring that up, the fact that we can't even look at these laws and we'll sooner let more people die um, as a result of guns than actually do something about our current gun laws. Yeah, and I remember back when we had the shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, mm -hmm. how within a few days they made important changes to their gun laws, important statements uh, around Islamophobia, and they made a number of sweeping changes. In a matter of days. I remember some. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And because they had the political and moral will to do that, and they had a prime minister who led that. And you know what's interesting is someone on Twitter said, in reaction to this, said, wow, did they even try thoughts and prayers? <laughs> Yo. Yeah. And I, d I don't want to get into this, but there's a lot of important uh, statements against violence in the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon and the Bible. You know, Jesus uh, told people, 
that if you, you know, all who take up a sword will die by the sword. He said, put your sword back in its place. He said, you know, he didn't never you thought that uh, lethal weapons were a way of solving anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have to connect this as especially as Latter-day Saints, our founding prophet who restored the church died by gun violence. Yep. And and we should be the first to say, look. And also connecting this with with obviously the situation is different, but with Black Lives Matter, we have an issue. Oh, dude, I was about to go there, though. Go ahead and say it, though. We have an issue. So we have to remember that Joseph Smith died in law enforcement custody by guns. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And uh, we should be the first to stand up for people who um, are victims of misunderstanding and prejudice, are victims of violence and who die in police custody because of the color of their skin. Mm, absolutely. So I probably said, started to say what you're going to say. So what were you going to say? Well, actually, I was going to add one more thing to that um, because I think you said it well enough. I'll just go ahead and add that you don't hear anybody quoting Martin Luther King right now when it comes to nonviolence. Like the only time I hear white people quote Martin Luther King is when black people are doing things to fight their oppression that they don't like. We don't hear people quoting Martin Luther King talking about nonviolence right now in the midst of gun in the midst of gun violence, you know, no preaching, no, um, no implementation or suggestion of an implementation of laws that'll prevent uh, violence. It's only when the people that are meant to be subjugated in their eyes are doing things that they don't like to fight their oppression. Will they bring up or invoke the name of Martin Luther King to condemn such actions? So I just wanted to tack that on there. Oh yeah. That's important. That's real. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. Do yeah, we, we want to talk about this anymore? No, that's all I have. Cool. Then let's go ahead and move on to uh, this week's Come Follow Me, which is found in Romans 7 through 16. And uh, if it's cool with you, Derek, I thought I would just start with a general theme that I noticed. And I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, most people are already aware of it, but it, it's worth mentioning simply because they, uh, they took pains to put it in the manual. So I just wanted to bring this up was a lot of this particular section and a lot of the letters of Paul are him correcting false ideas and flawed behaviors in the church. At this point, we're only a generation or two removed from Christ, and Paul is spending a lot of his time telling folks to stop messing up Christ's teachings. So, you know, we can learn a couple of things just from this. The church is going to be a flawed place because flawed people are in it and flawed people are running it. Therefore, it wouldn't be wise of us to expect perfection from those we go to church with or our leaders. We see this in the Book of Mormon as well. Not long after great signs and wonders, not long after being humbled and experiencing the goodness of Christ, people will fall into prideful cycles and iniquity will enter even the church. Then the cycle will begin anew. A lot of these letters, if not all of them, are basically Paul correcting the saints and making an effort to prevent the spread of false doctrine and other iniquities. Did you want to say anything on that? Well, what you said just reminded me of what happened in the Book of Mormon with Samuel the Lamanite. Oh, yeah. Jesus showed up and said, look, I sent you a brown prophet and you forgot about him. (laughs) So put him back in the record. Yeah, write it down. Write it down. Why aren't these things written? So um, the first thing I would like to bring up that I I noticed in here was uh, how the law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ. And you brought you brought this up earlier and I kind of want to come back to that. Uh, 
Because here's the thing. I, I feel like we sometimes misunderstand what that phrase means, the law of Moses being fulfilled in Christ, the old law being fulfilled in Christ. And the simplest way I have been articulating it, which is still a gross oversimplification, is that the 600 or so commandments that we get in the Old Testament have been done away and replaced with two laws by Christ, which is basically love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. But again, that's a bit of an oversimplification because, for example, the Savior expanded the commandments, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit mm -hmm. adultery by now commanding Christians to even avoid uh, hatred or lust. I think that's in Matthew somewhere. don't remember exactly where, but I think it's Matthew 5. Uh, merely abstaining from adultery and murder was no longer sufficient, and Christians must now change their very hearts. And this was more than the old law had required. Uh, the, also, at the Last Supper, Jesus made it clear that the atonement he was about to accomplish instituted a new covenant, which would replace, you know, the old one. And on at least two occasions in the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that the teaching of the law, at least on the issue of divorce, was not eternal because it was only a... Uh, uh, a, t a temporary concession made necessary by the stiff nakedness of Israel. In the Book of Mormon, we also see this with Abinadi when he's like talking to King Noah in his court when it came to the nature of the law of Moses. And yet it's vital to note that that um, uh, that 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 in teaching the law of Jesus, the law was not revoked and it was not repealed but fulfilled like it that that's the word they choose to use they don't say it was a revocation they don't say it was a repealing they say it was fulfilled so like under the gospel of christ murder adultery dishonesty all that kind of stuff they're still prohibited and the formal requirements of the law are essentially still in place but the demand of the law of moses has been expanded it has been filled to its fullest extent because where there's no hatred or greed, there won't be any murder. There won't be any theft. Where there is no lust, there isn't going to be any adultery. And with the coming of Christ, the ethical, the ethical portion of the law, it, it, that's not abolished, but it's actually expanded. It's uh, updated. It's caught up. It's included in it and uh, uh, made broader so that it can uh, plot. It, it, it's expanded to a broader application in its intention and its potential as an ethical standard has been fulfilled. So I think that's why like the words are that that word of being fulfilled is so important because this is uh this is not quite a repealing, it's not quite a revocation. Like there are certain things that have been done away with, like, you know, the law of blood sacrifice, but uh, Paul's language at the beginning of uh I think it's Romans 7 where he gave that little analogy about um you know, a wife, when she's with her husband, she's obligated right. to him. But when he dies, she's no longer tied to him and her obligations are done. You know, that's that's what's happening here. That's what happened with the old law of blood sacrifice. We were married to the old law, but then Christ came because the old law was a type of things. It was a type of Christ. And when Christ came, we no longer needed to keep those old things. I feel like that's a pretty easy thing to understand. But uh, the rest of this, when it comes to the actual law, I think we need to understand that when Christ came, he fulfilled the law by expanding it and making it broader uh, in its application. So I just wanted to add that insight briefly. Yeah, I just want to say one thing about that. It's important to remember that Paul isn't coming in as a systematic theologian giving a complete, final, once-for-all, universal answer to, to all of these things. What he's doing is writing to a living church 
that is trying to navigate what it's like to have Jews and Gentiles together in the same community. Yeah. And like I said, he's talking. So everything he says is actually really practical. And what it, basically his attitude is, look, I'm going to put it to you this way so I, we can figure out how to live as Jews and Gentiles together. And these particular restrictions, such as Sabbath, circumcision, are not binding on our non-Jewish uh, siblings in Christ. And so that's kind of what he means. So he's, I think if the situation on the ground were different, he would have ended up phrasing it a little bit different. So we shouldn't take this as some type of inflexible abstract truth for all time that but he's really digging into like how does this impact your daily life how does the torah the law impact your daily life and how does it find its its goal and ultimate fulfillment in a community that's shaped by christ and that's where paul's going with it uh, did you want to say anything else about that particular section uh, particularly this law of moses being fulfilled in christ no okay so the second thing I wanted to uh, address was Romans 10. I, I got a little PTSD reading these verses because um, particularly particularly because of verses uh, 9 and 13. Like as I started to take my religion more seriously growing up, I came across a lot of Christian peers who would often quote these verses to say that all you have to do is verbally confess a belief in Jesus Christ. And this really got on my nerves for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is what kind of sense does it make that the cost of the greatest gift we could ever receive is a verbal confession of a belief in Christ, regardless of whether or not we know what that belief entails. It, it's not only a senseless suggestion, but in my opinion, a downright evil one, like telling someone that their salvation only depends on a verbal confession is a straight up lie and could potentially jeopardize their spiritual progress. And which brings me to the second thing that they clearly hadn't read the adjacent chapters of Romans or James chapter 2. Like, we literally just read about a people who straight up lost their right to the blessings and responsibilities of the gospel because they failed to walk in Christ. Further, there are actual Jews who confess Christ, and uh, when they maintained a loyalty to that, they didn't, lose, they didn't actually lose their blessing. You know what I'm saying? They became Christians. But everybody else who maintained a zealous loyalty to the law of Moses, you know, they weren't able to partake of that ble particular blessing. And that leads to my third point. The Greek word translated as confess, de de it, it, it denotes an open acknowledgement of acceptance or covenant. And the Greek word translated as believe denotes a trusting commitment, like the kind of trust that leads people to openly acknowledge their acceptance of him in ways that he has appointed, which includes regular repentance and receiving saving ordinances. Like, I, I, I came to hate these verses growing up because they implied that there was an easy way to obtain salvation. And that's one of the worst things I feel like we can teach as Christians and one of the worst things we can believe. While the way is simple, and Christ has said that much, like his yoke is easy, his burden is light, uh, the way of the disciple is not always an easy one. Uh, to quote Elder Holland, how could we believe it would be easy for us when it was never easy for him? To know salvation, to know to come to know the truth and to know something of this price that Christ has paid for us, we will have to pay a token of that same price. So um, I just wanted to acknowledge that, that uh, gaining salvation is much more or requires much more than a verbal confession of a belief in Christ. It requires significant action on our part, which is, and that's how we accept the grace of Christ. Yeah, this is a much longer 
conversation because I would frame I would frame a lot of this very differently, especially when you look at Paul's whole argument really centers on justification by faith. Uh-huh. But you can't take that as a nugget of truth separate from the inclusion of the Gentiles because one of his primary concerns is how do we integrate the Gentiles if they don't have to uh, obey this ceremonial requirements of the law, such as circumcision, kosher, keeping Sabbath. And that's, I think, what he means by salvation by faith. It's not that you earn your place in, in God's covenant people, but it's that being part of God's covenant people leads to a changed life. And I think this is really what James 2 is talking about as well. Uh-huh. And I think if you take these, what the evangelicals will love to do is take these verses out and imagine that every verse in the Bible is like an individual pearl on a necklace. And they're just taking yeah. this little nugget and looking at this pearl and saying, look at this beautiful pearl. Well, you have to look at the flow of Paul's argument in its historical context and what practical occasion is he responding to. And mm-hmm. part of what's going on here is that the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in the middle of the first century. And so the Jewish Christians had to leave Rome and the Gentile Christians remained in Rome. And then they were allowed back five years later. And then, so now you've got these Jewish Christians back in Rome. And then Paul has to write this letter to them saying, now, now that, now that you're back, you've got to, we've got to figure out how to get along and how to live together and how we're going to frame this. And in that context, it's very important for, for Paul to say, look, Justification really is by faith because that's um, how the Gentiles get included to begin with. But it doesn't say like, oh, you just have to mouth a few words and then there's this like magic incantation and then you don't have to have any changed life. That's right. not what Paul is saying. And he, right. he clearly says that. He responds to that misinterpretation of him in Romans chapter 6. Um. So for me, I would frame it when talking about Paul that, yes, we actually are saved by faith. And then just interpret that in context. Right, right. I did want to talk about Romans 11 briefly, but uh, I do remember you saying that this is uh, a little tricky to talk about. Um, so I do want to be careful. Did, did you want to say Because what stood out to me was particularly... 11 through 22 like we we learn about foreordination in verses in chapters like 9 through 11 uh, specifically that folks were foreordained to be of the house of israel to receive certain blessings and responsibilities but in chapter 11 we learned that uh, when the house of israel rejected christ and in so doing they lost their promised blessings and the lord gospel and the lord then offered the gospel and his blessings to the gentiles um i was trying to find something there but you know I, I want to tread carefully. I do want to tread carefully on this because I don't want to say aught of our Jewish brothers and sisters, neither do I want to draw any improper parallels. Yeah, I don't think that Paul is talking about... Well, let, let me just back up and say what Paul's doing is, first of all, he's speaking as a Jew, and he names this at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. He's an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's able to say things that we as Gentiles can't say. Mm-hmm. Two, you also can't take Romans 11 apart and treat it 
separately from from the promises of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. So in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, God is saying, look, if you abandon my covenant and start getting wicked, you're going to be punished with exile and all sorts of things. But then in Deuteronomy 30, he says, even if when you're in exile, if you call out to me, I will save you and I will restore you. So there's hope there. So what Paul's right. doing is appealing to what the Hebrew prophets have already said and this long prophetic tradition of the Hebrew prophets calling out the wickedness of Israel. So you you know how black people can say words that white people shouldn't say? Yeah, I know a thing or two you know? about that. Yeah, it's a similar thing here. Like Paul can appeal to the the long tradition of Hebrew prophetic uh, condemnations of Israel in a way that we can't. And I and so another thing to realize historically here, the people of Israel in the first century would have still considered themselves to be in exile, like they were not. They were some of them were back in the land of Israel, but they weren't in control. They didn't have. Uh, they weren't restored to like a Davidic monarchy. That was the whole promise. So they were still in exile. So I don't think G Paul is talking about the wickedness of rejecting Christ as uh, as what's going on here. I think he's talking about something that's been going on for centuries of not being able to com to adequately hold up their end of the deal of the covenant. And he's saying, look, this long this long period of of Israel rejecting God now can be fixed in Christ. I don't think that he's, um, Paul is, I think he's talking about some ongoing wickedness, not just not just um, rejecting Christ in this moment. Okay. But, and that, I think, changes. But that is part, still part of it, or, or is it not? I don't think so. I don't think he ties it, if I remember correctly, anywhere directly to, to the rejection of Christ. Okay, um, I'm just like just in the context of like what we're what we're reading here. It just feels like this is at least a, some kind of acknowledgement of a rejection of Christ. Like I, I don't I don't see how else I, I don't see how that not being a part of this would merit them losing uh, their promised blessings, unless of course, like you said, they do elect to come back or they do elect to start walking in the way of the Lord or you know, whatever it is, uh, what is being offered to the Gentiles, then that's not being offered to the Jews. Well, I mean, I don't think there's anything that's offered to the Gentiles that's not offered to the Jews. Because Paul says uh, that, you know, the Jews shouldn't boast about, I mean, the Gentiles shouldn't boast about their spot because they could get cut off too for wickedness. They're kind of in the same boat. What he's doing uh -huh. is saying, we've got this long centuries narrative where where Israel has has rejected God and rejected the covenant and not lived up to it. Okay. And that's sort of the the rejection that Paul is talking about. Okay. I don't think I don't think it's talking just about or even essentially about the rejection of Christ. But what Paul is doing is saying, well, Israel is like the original olive tree and some of the native the original branches which is, are are broken off and the gentiles 
have been grafted in, contrary to nature. And he's doing this to say, oh, look, maybe I can prompt other, uh, the original olive branches to come back in. And they're obviously welcome to come back in as well. And I think the whole logic here is, is one that shouldn't, shouldn't prompt any pride in, in either Jews or Gentiles because we're mm-hmm. both essentially grafted in by grace. And we don't we don't earn our place. It is uh, it's and we can't boast and we don't earn it by which ethnic group we're in. I think that's Paul's real point. Okay. And I think that for Paul, you will have salvation both for Jews and Gentiles through faith in in Christ. But what I don't want to do is take Paul out of his Hebrew Bible context and out of his own Jewish positionality and say, oh look. Jews are wicked, they killed Christ, they rejected Christ, they don't believe in Christ, and now they're being punished. Because that's that's not what Paul's saying. Because right. what Paul actually anticipates the pride of Gentiles saying, oh, look, now we're the cool ones. And that's not what we should say. You know, because one of the misconceptions would be that, that God gave up on Israel and said, oh, no, that didn't work. I'm just going to start over and start something new with the Gentiles. And the whole point of this grafting analogy is that God didn't start over new. He grafted in and is trying to continue the same covenant people, but just expanding it and expanding it in a way that will provoke many people to want to join it, including the original Israelite branches. I think that's really what Paul's argument is in Romans 11. Yeah, that one makes sense. It gives the people, it gives everybody an opportunity to still... Uh, partake of the goodness of Christ. It gives everybody an opportunity to still walk in the right way. It's not like he's reject. It's not like God is rejecting Israel. Like that's not what's happening at all. It's just like I, I go back to the parable of the great banquet when when the original guest didn't arrive. He just filled his uh, table with guests from the outside, and like anybody who was willing to come in off the streets was welcomed. So I just see this being. A, an expansion that welcomes everybody who's willing to take upon those responsibilities that come with being of the house of Israel so they so that somebody can get these blessings. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Cool. And I just want to add in um Romans some some something from Romans 4 that I find very powerful that people will easily miss. And it's the idea of how did the Gentiles get included in in the first place? Because there's sort of two options. Like I said, Paul is, in a sense, making stuff up on the spot for a particular situation on the ground. Like, how is he going to explain it to people? How we just kind of shoved these Gentiles in? Like, what is your basis for that? Like, how do you process that and how do you make sense of it? And that's what he's doing. He's And he has a little bit of a different answer to different churches if you compare his letters. But anyway, so in Romans 4, he has to figure out, well, how am I going to explain this? And there's sort of two options. One is he could say, well, I'm going to take the Gentiles and make them honorary Israelites in some way. I could say that they are spiritually descendant uh, of Abraham, that they uh, are spiritually circumcised, and somehow, basically, that Gentiles are included 
because they're somehow honorary Jews. That's one option he, he could have done. But that's not what he did. He actually did it backwards. And I find this so, so profound. It's actually very subversive and very radical because he turned everything upside down on its head because you have to realize that at this point you have a such such pride in being descendants of Abraham and such uh, that's what was the defining point of we are people who keep the covenant we are people who are circumcised and our father Abraham was circumcised and we're following in that covenant and that was their whole tribal identity but then you have Paul coming in and saying wait a minute wait a minute let's actually go back and and see what's happened here and he does two things he says well, first of all, we see in Genesis chapter 16 that Abraham is actually justified by faith because this is the, the faith in the promise that he in his old age will have a son, Isaac. And it says in Genesis 16 that Abraham believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. And A, this was before he was circumcised. And and Paul makes a big deal about this. And before the covenant of circumcision, circumcision, Abraham was justified by faith. And so instead of including the Gentiles on Abrahamic terms, he actually includes Abraham on Gentile terms and saying, if you go back far enough, Abraham was justified when he was still a Gentile, when he was still uncircumcised, when there wasn't a covenant with him yet. He was justified by faith. So he's appealing to the center of, of Jewish identity, which is being a descendant of Abraham, and saying, well, look, this Abraham that you're, that you're focusing on actually was saved when he was, was justified when he was an uncircumcised Gentile. And he like, wow, I think that's so interesting because— so many people want to include queer people on straight terms, or they want to include black people as as honorary white people. And I think that he here Paul is turning things upside down and saying, look, if you go back, it's actually backwards. And be, because he grounded it that way, he really secures the place of Gentiles. He appeals to this older tradition that goes right back to the sources and there's like no way of refuting it. I think that's really brilliant. All right. Anything else uh, you want to uh, share about Romans 11? I know you got some uh, other points from uh, this particular reading that you want to get to. No, I don't have anything else from Romans 11. All right, cool. Uh, I would love to hear more about uh, the other insights you gained from the reading. Yeah. I just want to say one thing. Oh, there's just too many things to say, but one thing <laughs> from Romans eight. Okay. I love this part of his argument. Um, I don't want to talk a little bit about Thomas Wayment's new translation of the New Testament. It's okay. uh, subtitled A Translation for Latter-day Saints. So here we have a biblical scholar who is a Latter-day Saint who published his own translation of the New Testament into contemporary English. And part of, his, part of the reason why he did this is he had so, so many students at BYU coming up to him and saying, I can't understand the New Testament in the King James Version. So what they were doing is they would read the new they would read the Bible in their mission language because they would learn, you know, they would say, "Oh, I understand Spanish or German or 
Chinese. I understand that actually better than I understand King James. So they would read a contemporary translation in their mission language because they just it was so hard for them. So he's like, oh, man, I should actually do a, a translation with footnotes and annotations for Latter-day Saints. And I think it's a really good, good translation. Okay. So I would I would suggest people to 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 pick it up and and use it and now I wouldn't agree with everything that that Wayman did. No two scholars will agree on anything, right? But I think overall it's it's exceptionally good and and very helpful. So I'm going to read from Wayman's translation of Romans eight verses thirty one to thirty two. He says, right. Paul says, "What shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us?" He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for all of us, how will he not also graciously give us all things with his son? So the logic here is is appealing to even the same wording. We've got some similar wording in Greek. The, the word for spare here is the same one in the Septuagint of Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, well, you did not spare your only son, Isaac. So his point is is here that if God isn't even willing to hold back his son from us, his precious son, he won't hold back anything from us. The God who gave over his son will go give over anything for us, anything and everything we need. All that he has will be given us because we are also his children as Romans 8 clearly clearly talks about and we can cry out to god our father abba and and just know that we as children of god have a claim on god and that the god who isn't willing to hold back his son won't hold back anything and i think that is really true for lgbt's because we can know that god isn't going to hold back anything from us if god is going to give up his son he's going to give us everything and we who are LGBT will get all of the promised blessings that our straight people ha- uh, have promised to them, too. We shouldn't feel deprived or that we're left out or anything like that. Because if God is willing to give up his son, wow, like he'll do anything for us. So that's all I had to say about Romans 8. There are just so many good things in Romans 8 there about suffering Um and I want to connect this with, with Romans chapter 5 because we have this, this statement in the beginning of Romans chapter 5 that says, um, and not only that, we rejoice, this is verse 3, and not only that, we rejoice in trials, knowing that trial produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. So we had a listener ask me to ask me to to respond to the question does God want us to suffer? Okay. And that's really complicated because on one level part of the plan of mortality is to come to this life and experience opposition, experience the bitter and the good. And through that, develop a, a particular celestial character. And there is no other way. And so there's in one sense, God realize It's kind of like asking a parent whose child is learning to walk, do you ever want them to fall down? And and on one level, it's no. But on a level, level, another level, it's yes, because 
if they don't walk on their own, they're n if they don't take the risk of, you can't learn to walk without falling down. It's part along of the, the experience. Way. It is, and there's no other way to learn to walk on your own without falling. Right. Um, you could just carry your kid around, and they'll never learn to walk, and they'll never fall, but they'll never learn to walk. And I think that's what it is. Be uh, we should never use this in an abusive way to say, well, God wants you to suffer, or God wants LGBTs to suffer. And I should point out that Paul's language is really interesting here because he doesn't say that we celebrate our sufferings. He says we celebrate in our sufferings, which is very different. Right. And I think w the reason we're able to celebrate in our sufferings is because we're grounded in Christ first, and we know that these sufferings build character. And a lot of people think that, oh, when we're celestial beings, we're exalted, you know, our suffering will go away. And I'm like, okay, but let's look at Moses chapter 7 when Enoch has his vision of God and finds God weeping, right? Here's yeah. God, an exalted being, who's still suffering and still has compassion uh, for his children. Like, I, in some ways, suffering isn't even negated by exaltation. And I think there's something beautiful about that. There's also something kind of scary about that, but there's something beautiful about that. So we shouldn't use this to excuse people's suffering or make them suffer worse or blame them for their suffering. But we should see this rather, you know, ra rather than asking the question, does God want us to suffer? We should ask, well, is God suffering with us? Mm. And that's more powerful. Any thoughts on that? I was, was going to ask if you were going to answer that question, like that last question. Uh, does God? Like, does he, which, that, does he suffer with us? And um, oh, yes, of course. And that's the whole message of the cross. Right. Too. Right. And this is, uh, you know, OK, sorry, go ahead. Because here's here's something really profound about the incarnation. It's that God tore through the crystal skies over Bethlehem and compressed an eternity of love into a newborn baby. And then this baby became a man who died on the cross and this christ event changes everything for paul like everything he does gets changed and colored by his perspective of the christ event and that and you don't understand any of paul without understanding the centrality of that and that's how i love this word cruciform it means cross-shaped that paul's theology is very cruciform that he's always centering the cross and centering the fact that that we defeat suffering not by uh we don't defeat suffering through this military victory but we defeat suffering by exposing ourselves to it and overcoming it and not letting us get it down and letting god raise us up and even from the dead I think that's that's kind of where Paul is going with this. Okay. I would agree with so that. So yes, sentiment. God God does suffer with us and he made it so obvious and prominent that he came down and died with us as one of us, taking upon himself the sins, weaknesses and sufferings of everyone. Yeah. And I just want to connect this with where Paul's going with his whole argument is in Romans chapters 12 through 14, he now says, "Well, look, we're justified by faith, 
the Christ event has now declared us righteous and declared us as part of this multi-ethnic family um, who are now spiritually or literally offspring of Abraham. Now, because we are a community infused by Christ's love, how does that play out in our daily life? And that's where, where Romans 12 through 14 come in, where he talks about what love looks like in the church. And in Romans 12, he talks about everyone using their different gifts, their different callings, and their different uh, positionalities and personalities to serve one another. And here we have the Jews and Gentiles back together. And that's where we say, look, we have to talk about food sacrifice to idols, and, and we have to talk about the Sabbath day, and we have to talk about how we're going to live together and that we shouldn't judge one another, we should make space for one another, we should um, have the stronger people make room for the weaker. There's just so many things that are packed in here, and he grounds everything back in Christ and Christ's command to love, to love one another. And he says the whole law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And he just talks about not judging one another. Um, it's just, there's just so many things that I don't even want to start pointing them out one by one. But I, I really see this vision, and I think this is true when we look at issues of gender or race or um, orientation or gender identity, all of these things, we, we have to learn to live together. And I think there's so much wisdom about a community grounded in Christ-like love changing everything about how we deal with one another. Mm. Anything else from 12 through 14? No. And then the only other thing I wanted to talk about were the um, women church leaders in Romans 16. Oh, yes. I didn't even know there was a, a female apostle. I was, uh, I was anxious to hear some more about that. Yeah, so I'm gonna. So there's three women. So there are there are eight women listed as leaders, church leaders in in chapter sixteen. Uh, ten women total, I think, named. Okay. The first one is Phoebe. The Greek word is diakonos, which we can translate as deacon or servant. And this isn't a term to be minimized because Paul refers to himself as a diakonos in First Corinthians three five. And in Second Corinthians three six and six four, so this is a this is a very uh, honorable and noble term, and it's not the same as deacons today. Um, it, in the church, we, the deacon was a full blown office with significant responsibility, and, and also it's just a word that means a servant or assistant or someone who's who's doing God's work here on earth. Okay, and so Phoebe is is named as a deacon. She is also named as a sister, meaning a believer, and she's also named as a as a uh, a benefactor or someone who's a patron. So it looks like she ha is of some means or wealth, and she was able to support um, uh, support Paul, probably financially. And so this, what I love about this is that Paul does two things. One, he doesn't name Phoebe in terms of her connection to a man, right? He doesn't say, well, this is someone's daughter or this is some man's wife or even a mother. She's not listed as a mother. Um, she's listed based on her calling, 
her her authority, things like that. And he expects the Romans to respect her. Like that's the whole point of this greeting in Romans chapter 16 is he's expecting the Romans to greet her and to treat her with respect and honor. And I think that's a great way that Paul is is using his own privilege, what little he has. Um, but he's using his authority to say, look, I'm commending our sister Phoebe to you. Okay? And I just think that's so amazing because there's absolutely room for women's leadership in both yeah. the first century church and in the restored church. Yeah. And then the next one I want to talk about is Prisca. And she is the, we see her in Acts 18, and she actually has with her husband a teaching role. She teaches Apollos, um, who is a, a major co-worker with, with Paul, or almost competitor with Paul, but, but that level. And so she's teaching someone like that w in that situation. And I think it's important. And what, what's also interesting is um, Prisca and Aquila were husband and wife, but Paul names Prisca first. And he uh, doesn't name her as, oh, she's just the wife of Aquila. He coordinates everything he says about one, he says about the other. He says about them together. Like everything that they've done, that they've, they've risked their necks for Paul and um, their fellow workers with Paul. I think this is very honorable that he, he does this and, and lifts up Prisca. Yeah. Um, she, he, and sh she's called Priscilla in Acts and in, in later manuscripts of Romans. She's called Priscilla. So, But it's uh, the same name. Okay. Priscilla is just the diminutive form. And let's, now let's talk about, about Junia. Yeah, let's talk about so Junia. So here we have and, and and Andronicus and Junia. This, this is a husband and wife couple, most likely, uh, a man and a woman who are greeted in verse 7 of Romans chapter 16. And he, uh, he talks about them as kinsmen and fellow prisoners. He also talks about them as having seniority over him because they were in Christ first. Okay. And then he says that they are... And here's where the translations can get can get kind of in, difficult. He says that they're notable or distinguished among the apostles. And this is an inclusive sense that, that Andronicus and Junia, both of them are apostles. And not only that, but they're well known or distinguished or notable okay. among the apostles. And we don't have much more information about her. She's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And I know some, but now some people have tried to say, well, Junia well, must have been a man. And we've got just another rare male name here. Um, but I think they're only saying that because in, the, in, in their preconception, they wouldn't see a woman apostle. And then there are some other people who are trying to say that, well, Clearly, she's a woman. We can't get out of that. But what we're going to say is that she was just well-known to the apostles. But as it turns out in Hellenistic Greek, the construction that's used here really can only mean that she was distinguished among 
the apostles. And so I find that that's very interesting. We have um, three very important women leaders who have teaching responsibilities. They have leadership responsibilities. They have missionary responsibilities. Um, they have uh, responsibilities like Phoebe does of of hosting and leading a congregation in Sancria. And she's also probably the one who reads out loud the letter to the Roman house churches when she gets there. She's the one, because um, she's sent by Paul, it looks like she's the one who's there, also brokering some of the, perhaps, explanation of the letter, any context. And also she's there to help Paul establish a base for his westward mission in Spain that he's planning. Mm. And he needs their support, so he sends the very best. He sends Phoebe. And so what I want to draw from this is um, how it's important important for us that when we get the microphone like Paul does he lifts up women and obviously right now we don't have any women on this episode but what we can do is say while we're here you know we need to to lift up all these women in the church Mm. and and not ignore them and not minimize their contributions and realize that uh, like Paul said himself in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female. All right. Anything else from Romans you want to bring in? No, no. I mean, no, not this time. We'll have to come <laughs> back and do a lot. But, yeah. All right. There, there's a lot in Romans. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. And I really like what you had to say about – I mean, I liked all this stuff, man. There's a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom we can gain from here about, uh, about accepting Christ, about uh, raising up – uh, the voices of women about raising up, um, ju- ju- just about giving everybody a voice in general. And I got to admit, I didn't read the text like that before in terms of Paul taking an opportunity to raise the voice of uh, of the female apostles or of the, any of the female leaders for that matter. It's kind of something we just mm-hmm. gloss over, something we acknowledge that happened or if we acknowledge it at all, but probably don't necessarily appreciate the gravity of and uh, I, li- I like how you drew attention to that because this is uh, it is a pretty significant thing that Paul did there and it's pretty significant what what Junia was in this uh, you know in the context of these scriptures I, I just wish we had you know more from her or more about her in these uh, in these records but you know that is what it is that is everything I mean I already went over everything I had from uh, this week's reading uh, do you have I mean, there's nothing else from the reading you said. So if there is nothing right. else from the reading, uh, then we can go to the prayer roll. The prayer roll. Yeah, yeah. Yours, I believe, is more serious. So I should probably go with mine first. Um, and I would like to talk about Mario Lopez real quick. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you heard about this, Derek, but last month, Mario Lopez appeared on Candace Owens' show. She has a podcast that uh, that she hosts. Now, we've talked about Candace Owens before, and if, if you don't know who she is, she's basically the hottest black face for conservative thought at the moment. She's built notoriety mm-hmm. by criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement, parroting racist ideology, and subsequently appearing in many conservative spaces as the designated black person who said it, so it must be okay slash true. That is Candace Owens' role right now. 
Um, so anyway, go, moving to the conversation that they had, it, it actually started out normal enough. Uh, Mario Lopez uh, talks about growing up in a home that is very family focused, very faith focused, and you know it's you know it seems it seems pretty normal. And then they talk about uh, Mario's career in uh, Hollywood. He, they start talking about Hollywood's values, and the conversation eventually moves uh, to trans individuals. Now, Candace Owens kind of ju- uh, kicks off the conversation by saying something along the lines of how she doesn't understand how people can think that their children have the mental clarity and authority to decide their own gender. To which Lopez replies that, you know, first he, Lopez, first of all, requests that Candace Owens doesn't lump him into that Hollywood Hollywood uh, collective. And then he goes on to say, um, let me just grab the pull up the quote here. Lopez says, look, I never want to tell anyone how to parent their kids, obviously, and I would say if you come from a place of love, you really can't go wrong. Pause for a second, because first of all, he could have stopped right there. He could have just ended the entire, mm-hmm. his entire thought process right there. There should be a period. It blows my mind that there wasn't a period there. You didn't have to, you didn't have to stand on any side of this issue. And, he could, and that could have been the end of it, regardless of how he personally felt. But Mario does go on, and uh, he says, he continues, but at the same time, my God, if you're three years old and you're saying you're feeling a certain way or you think you're a boy or a girl, whatever the case may be, I just think it's dangerous as a parent to make the determination then, okay, well, then you're going to be a boy or girl, whatever the case may be. And it's sort of alarming, and my gosh, I just think about the repercussions later on. Close quote. Oh, and there's more, sorry. He goes on to say, when you're a kid... You don't know anything about sexuality yet. You're just a kid. Close quote. Um, okay. Um, there, there's a lot to unpack here. And, and before we do, I do want to make it clear and uh, be fair in saying that Mario Lopez has walked back this statement or his publicist walked back this statement and issued apology, I assume was also written by his publicist. But that said... This dude, without hesitation, released ignorance into the world with such brazen disregard for trans folk and academic consensus. Like, who is who is Mario Lopez with with his platform and influence to utter any opinions on trans people? Like, my guy, you literally get paid to read celebrity gossip from a teleprompter. Like, stay in your effing lane, Mario. Like, he, you really should have known better. I, I feel like... And, you know, let me just say this real quick. I feel like that's kind of been the general theme of the last few prayer rolls, at least the ones that I've had. It's been people making ignorant declarations that they have no business making at all. Like three weeks ago, it was it, it, it was a uh, who was it? It was a it was white ex Mormons telling black Mormons how to handle their oppression in the church. Uh, two weeks ago, it was a white man telling two black temple workers with dreads that their hair isn't natural. And just last week, it was a white man telling a black female doctor that his voice is just as important as hers in the race conversation. Like, what yeah. What convinces these people with little to no education or experience that their opinions are appreciated, wanted, or necessary in conversations about our liberation? Like, what makes them think they have any kind of answers at all? Um like they just they they just be reaching into the bank of BS that is their minds, withdrawing what little is in there, and feeling like it's sufficient to address such complex and nuanced issues. Like I I really don't get it. You know we we talked about this earlier today. We 
we we we talked about who was it? Somebody that had a freaking uh gosh, I lost it. I lost it. I'm just gonna move on. Uh, we we got to get back to Mario's Mario's particular remarks. His uh his last sentence. Let's talk about that real quick. He he said he's afraid of the repercussions, and I just want to ask, what repercussions? Like, do you know how messed up a kid is going to be if you as a parent don't permit them to explore their own gender identity? Do you know what you're going to do by forcing a gender identity that doesn't align with who the child truly is? Do you know how messed up that's going to be on them? Do you know how dangerous that's going to be? What do you have to lose by joining your child in the journey of exploring that? It's like... He and Candace Owens believe that young children are waking up one day at three years old declaring a new gender and then having reassignment surgery the next day, as if the parents and medical professionals are, uh, for one thing, treating children and all, all children, regardless of this age, the same way. And secondly, that they, they aren't making these decisions carefully. Like, the reality of what's happening in this process is much more nuanced, and that Candace and Mario don't seem to understand that betrays the absurdity of their arguments against supporting trans children from the jump. But let's just go ahead and add anyway that every every reputable psychological and scientific organization supports affirming a child's gender identity and gender expression. And why is that? They say it's because, quote, it strengthens family resiliency and takes the emphasis off heightened concerns over gender while allowing children the freedom to focus on academics, relationship building, and other typical developmental tasks. Close quote. So affirming a child can help ensure that they are not one of the 41% of trans people who attempt suicide. The worst that could happen, the worst that could happen if your child transgresses gender is they find their way to another gender later on or go back to their assigned gender. And they do all of that showered with your love and support. The worst that could happen on the other side, if you don't affirm them, if you don't support them in that journey, if you don't allow them the freedom of exploration of their gender, the worst that happens in that case is they die, is they become a statistic. So Mario Lopez, like you, you tell me which one is more dangerous. Like the parents out there of trans children, they're they're scared. They're they're afraid. They're looking for information to help them make decisions about their trans children. And Mario's uninformed comments, they're out there in the internet ether gaining any kind of traction. That that that's happening is a problem. Heteronormativity and straight supremacy have enabled men like Mario Lopez to utter transphobic things without fear of retribution. And we gotta stop normalizing that. We gotta stop enabling the uninformed and the privileged classes to say just whatever the heck they want about anything they want. Mario is a gossip reporter. Candace is literally famous because she's a black person who says disparaging things about other black people. Again, what is their qualification? Why aren't they staying in their lane? And, uh, gosh, we, again, I'm trying to remember this thought we discussed earlier um, about people having opinions on the on the shootings. But, um you know, we love to pretend that we know things that we don't. I, I think that's a I feel like that's a uniquely American thing. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but I said earlier that America is pretense uh and white supremacy and and capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like this is a unique a thing unique to Americans' DNA. Like from the armchair quarterbacking to 
the fact that Candace Owens, who literally has no political experience, is as prominent as she is simply because she says what she thinks about black organizations that fight for their liberation, and she does not agree with them. So I'm going to pray for them and anyone else who thinks it's okay to speak on things that they don't know enough about. People who have a job literally reading gossip news from a teleprompter who literally think that they have an opinion that is tantamount to the American Pediatric Psychiatric Association or whomever else. So that that Yeah, that, and one thing I'll Yeah, go ahead. I'll pray for is is that Mario would and this would be an act of grace if any trans people want to be his friend. But if he gets the opportunity and he's lucky enough to build deep lasting relationships with trans people that that I think is is something that would would to- completely change his perspective, and we shouldn't have obviously ask trans people to make this Christ-like sacrifice, right? right? Because it will involve suffering. It will involve holding someone's hand and explaining that you know, and they're not obligated to do that. But I'm hoping that if he's so lucky to have that opportunity, that he will take it and and develop real lasting relationships with trans people, because that's. I mean, I have I've done that, and that's helped me a lot. Yeah, and I think I think just knowing trans people, and yeah, I think that's that's the solution to him speaking out of his ignorance is to just end the ignorance. Yeah, and I did. It should be noted that I did see some people who, uh, some people from that community that did reach out to uh, Mario Lopez via Twitter. I, I don't know if he's taking them up on that. Of course, we're not going to hear about it because that doesn't really suit. Uh, you know, the angry narrative or whatever, but I really do hope Mario gets an opportunity. Or rather, if, if he w- I really hope Mario wrote that apology and that issuing of his walking back of his statement. I hope he did, in fact, write that, and I th- hope that he didn't mean that. Because, um, you know, the statement in essence said he does see the uh, harmful effect of his words now, but that's not the primary issue that I took. The primary issue that I took was, one, that he said it and felt okay in saying it, and two, that he, uh, without the necessary experience, still fe- felt okay to say it. So, you know, that's the primary thing I had. And one more other thing that bears, that's worth mentioning, is that in, um, in the community of allies, a lot of us wouldn't have a problem if our children were gay. But there are still people who would have a problem if their child was trans. And those are the people I worry most about, is those people that are potentially catching Mario Lopez's ear. Um, Because, uh, you know, dealing with trans issues is not the same as dealing with gay or bi issues at all. You know, we lumped them all up and together in that community, but that is a whole different set of issues that people are demonstrably less prepared to deal with than issues of having a gay child. And um, we have to be so much more careful with these issues of trans children because there is so much more potential for damage there. Um, and, and I really hope that uh, people in the church would understand that is that if it comes down between, you know, quote unquote, putting your foot down, as Mario Lopez said, in terms of discerni- determining your child's de- gender identity or erring on the side of compassion and love and support by allowing your child full gender expression, I honestly believe that Christ would choose the latter. Uh, because this whole broadening, we, we talked about the fulfillment of the law of Moses in Christ. I believe that the first and second great commandments support the latter decision to support your child because 
the alternative, the risks of the alternative are far worse. And uh, I think we're safe going with academic consensus and going along with compassion and support and affirmation. Right. I agree. And um, so I have something for the prayer roll, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead with it, Derek. Um, I, I'm ready for this one. OK, so. Yeah, this is this is nasty. So we have our ICE agents decide to I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. Maybe it was uh, Trump behind this. But they decide to go to a poultry factory processing plant and and basically round up undocumented workers while many of their children were at school. I think they had they found over the um, they took over 600 into custody many of them with young children who had no idea and had no one to pick them up after school, no one to feed them, no one to take care of them and keep them safe. And I think the first thing to name is this isn't just about law enforcement because there's another, you know, uh, less less restrictive way of doing it if they wanted to, you know, to, 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 to square these people up with the law. There's other ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. What they did is a tactic to intimidate and dehumanize, and it's, it's just basically a violent tactic designed to hurt people, and that's not at all consistent with the scriptures. Now, so I'm not an expert on, like, political stuff, right? Right. Um, I don't—I'm not an expert on that at all. What I am an expert on is the scriptures. So I'm going to, uh, as usual, as people can guess, tie this back to the scripture. I'm going to tie this back to a scripture that probably not a lot of people know. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. And this is the provision in the law of Moses that basically says that if someone, if someone has escaped from a cruel and oppressive master— and they have come to you for refuge. Do not send them back. Basically, do not deport them. In 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 modern, in our modern context. Mm-hmm. Not only this, it says in verse sixteen, basically that this person who has escaped from their master, escaped from this cruel situation where they're not free and they're not safe, they come to you, and it says that this person may live among you wherever they want in whatever village they want and you must not oppress that a person mm. i'm like wow this is so interesting if someone is coming to you from an unsafe situation and they seek you for refuge it literally says do not send them back you know do not send them back to this master mm. And I think, obviously, the, um, you know, this, the, like, the, the local context is around fugitive slaves, but I think the broader context speaks to this underlying value of who we are as a people and how we're supposed to treat people who are in need. I'm like, wow, why can't this be the Bible verse that people quote all the time? Yep, say it. 
And I just want to read into the record our church's statement from um, 2000 and uh, I have to pull it up real quick. I think it's 2011. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Yes. 2011. So the, the, the church came out with this official statement and this is what it says. What to do with the estimated 12 million undocumented immigrants now residing in various states within the United States is the biggest challenge in the immigration debate. The bedrock moral issue for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is how we treat other, each other as children of God. The history of mass expulsion or mistreatment of individuals or families is cause con for concern, especially where race, culture, or religion are involved. Mm. This should give pause to any policy that contemplates targeting any one group, particularly if that group comes mostly from one heritage. The church supports an approach where undocumented immigrants are allowed to square themselves with the law and continue to work without this necessarily leading to citizenship. Close quote. The church supports that. So many that was the last quote. That was the last sentence, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I find so many important things here. The bedrock issue here is how is not like oh are they following the law or a do they deserve what you know or none of these other things it's the bedrock issue is how we treat each other as children of god we should see immigrants uh first as children of god and second as whatever race nationality or ethnicity or religion they are now i hope i don't wander into the territory of now we're erasing their identities that's not what i'm doing I'm saying to these hypocrites that if they look at this other person and see them as a Mexican first and not even acknowledge that they're a children a child of God, that's the problem, right? Yeah. We should see people as children of God and treat them as children of God. Especially given our heritage as Latter-day Saints who were also on the move, also yep. migrants. Yep. Numerous times in our life, also subject to um I would go as far to, as to say to racial gross violence. misunderstanding. Yes, we were, you know, we should be the first people to stand up for. And I'm glad yep. that the church came out with a statement. Mm -hmm. It says, clearly, the church supports an approach where undocumented immigrants are allowed to square themselves with the law and continue to work, which is exactly not what happened here in Mississippi. No. They were taken from their jobs. In this surprise attack, I'm going to call it an attack, and uh, leaving their children with, you know, young children. When this happens to young children, they are traumatized for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. This, like doing something like this to adults is one thing, but doing this to someone at such a formative part of their life when they are solely, de completely dependent on their parents, and that just this is completely evil. This is disgusting and evil. It's just a brute show of power and force that's not Christ-like at all, that's not biblical at all, that completely violates the commandments. You know, I hate—oh, man. Let's talk about—one of the phrases that gets kind of annoying in the church is we talk about people keeping their covenants. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people—I think what a lot of people mean by that is like, oh, I'm not going to look at porn, right? Yeah. I got to keep my covenants. That's not all the covenants, you know, we should look at our covenant to love our neighbor. 
mm. to love the stranger among us. Yep. Part of our covenant is to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And that's what we what I'm doing right now with the people um, who were brutally um, captured in Mississippi, just based purely on. And I I know if these were like white European undocumented immigrants, this wouldn't have happened that way. And mm. that gets back to the church's statement that literally calls out race. Like if you are targeting people based on their race and nationality, the church says you that's this is something really really wrong. Big time. And I love um, the verse in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. Like if a stranger, a foreigner, the word in, in Hebrew is ger. If a stranger dwells with you, you must not oppress him. The foreigner who resides with you must be like a native citizen among you. You must love him as yourself. Not just love your neighbors yourself, but love the stranger, love the ger as yourself. Mm-hmm. Because you were strangers or immigrants in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow. Like, I wish people would quote this verse as much as they quote the anti-gay verses. For real. Or what they perceive to be the anti-gay verses. For real. And this is like adjacent to those verses, is it not? Like adjacent to those chapters. It is, yeah. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. It's absurd, man. Right here in the middle of them. Uh, <laughs> in the middle of them, you said. Yeah, wow. right in the middle. And there's also... There's also Leviticus 19:16 which says um you shall not stand by idly while your neighbor's blood is shed. You have to intervene. Dude. Like when people ask, "Well, why do I do stuff about Black Lives Matter?" Like I'm keeping my covenant. Mm-hmm. I cannot let people die. Mhm. Mhm. Right? The whole Black Lives Matter is is about this co- this commandment. It is a commandment from god that we should not sit by idly as a bystander while people are dying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i just want to pray for um the the ice agents who did this and the people who are behind this and the um the the people of our, our country who are standing by and supporting this or letting it happen like, we seriously need repentance. This is not okay. No, it is really not. This is completely not okay. We, we are going to be judged for this, man. Like, I, I, I don't know how it's going to happen, but we are going to be judged for how we have treated our neighbors to the south and just everybody else who, I mean, we basically don't like, you know, everybody else to whom we are shirking our baptismal covenants, shirking our Christian covenants, whatever those may be, just... This is this whole thing is a mess, and uh, we're doing it in the name, like a lot of people think they're doing it in the name of Christ. But you know, we're gonna stand condemned for claiming that the reason we did this was had anything to do with Christianity, or worse, the fact that we just we know what the teaching is, and we just don't want to do anything about it. You know, you know, we're we're gonna be judged for that, and uh, it's gonna be sore. It's gonna be very sore. Anyway. Yeah, so that's all I had. Let's pray for them, and obviously let's play, pray for the survivors of this attack. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Derek, them. Um, yeah. you have you, you pitched an idea that I'm anxious to try out, uh, an, an idea for a new segment, Creating, creating Christ Change. And, yes, uh, I'm so excited about this, yeah. Creating Christ-like Change. Would you mind explaining it before you get into it real quick, Derek? 
So basically what I wanted to do is so much of what we talk about is um, is or at least so much of what I talk about is really academic or theoretical in nature. Like I'm talking about the principles and I don't really talk much about, well, can I give you like a little serving of this that you can actually take home with you and do something practical like a a concrete thing to do or say in a particular situation and I thought to myself wouldn't it be cool if I could start teaching people some of the principles that I've used to help thrive in the church to help create change locally things like that and so it would be just a brief thing that tells you really clearly like oh in your if you're in this situation like how to be an ally to a group that you're not a part of or how to redirect people when they say something that's well-meaning and they just don't know the right word to say mm, okay and uh, because because that's a little bit different than someone stubbornly knowing the right thing to say and they're just just being evil and cruel and i think this happens a lot in the church is we've got a lot of good people who are totally eager to do the right thing as soon as they know what they I- what what the right thing is mm-hmm. and i see this sort of in the social justice community there's this sense of hyper wokeness of wanting to correct people and wanting to fix things and which which is fine but i'm thinking how do we do it strategically and how do we do it in a way that's effective and doesn't backfire and doesn't create um for defensiveness and fragility things like that so that's kind of why I wanted to have this segment. And the other reason is this would give another thing for people to tune into like, oh, I want to listen again this week just so I can hear this creating Christ-like change piece because I think that is something that will be really, really appealing to a lot of people that they can take and literally use the same day they hear it. All right. So uh, what is uh, what is today's uh, practical application? So yeah, for... For today, I'm going to talk about this idea that's a strategic way of calling in an individual or a group when you are acting as an ally to some other group and uh, you want to redirect and give them better language or educate them on something. And so there's two parts to this. Uh, the, The first part is, and let me give you the example here. Like a lot of us use the word Old Testament, or the phrase Old Testament. I know a number of my Jewish friends who who find that quite offensive because it's basically first of all that's not what they call it themselves um, because for they they don't have the the new and improved version that we're claiming to have so so calling theirs old and obsolete is kind of problematic but anyway so like how would you if people if you're what we don't want to do is come in with this idea of like, oh, I'm a know-it-all and you did this wrong thing and now I'm going to embarrass you in front of others. Because, you know, em- not I- not embarrassing people, that's also a commandment from God. We shouldn't unnecessarily embarrass people, right? Love your neighbors yourself. You wouldn't, you know, we all make these mistakes. You wouldn't want someone to, to trash you horribly for these or make you completely embarrassed. We all say the wrong words from time to time. Um, and obviously that it's not okay we should say the right words but uh, the right words can change from time to time or you just might not know so how do we deal with that and so here's my two parts for this so the first part is to check for consent and you say these words 
Hey, can I share with you something that I just learned? Those words. And checking for consent is important for two reasons. One, because it is establishes that you're collaborating with them as peers. You're framing it as, oh, look, we're in the same situation. I just learned this a little bit before you did. And you're not lecturing them as an authority. And it also shows some Christ-like humility. And it also doesn't claim to speak for the group, right? You don't want to come in and say, for example, I would never come in and say, I'm an expert on black people. And here's what you should do. And you did this wrong because I'm not. Um, even though I have a little bit more knowledge than some people about what, what black people have asked us to do, that doesn't mean that I'm perfect at all. You know, I'm still part of the problem. But anyway, so that's the first part. The first part is say, hey, can I share with you something that I just learned? And by asking for consent, you get them on board. And now they're in a frame of mind that's more willing to hear what you have to say. So here's the second part. You can say, I just learned that our Jewish friends have asked us to be careful not to use the term Old Testament. And that's, that's basically it. And you can all, uh, uh, explain a little bit why. But to say, I just learned this. It gives the impression that you're framing it as something that you just learned. And now you're able to, you're just excited to be able to share it with others and educate them without making them feel bad. Or feel like, oh, you should have known this. Well, I mean, yes, they should have known this, but but we don't want to <laughs> rub it in too much. Especially if they're making an innocent mistake. Right. There's a lot of people that, I hate to say this, but in the LGBT world, the language can change very, very quickly. That what I'm teaching people to use today will be um, out of date in five years and offensive in ten years. So, um, and to say, oh, I just learned it speaks to the truth that we all no one is 100% woke we all learned it at some point and yeah. in the eternal perspective we just learned it too and then by not positioning yourself as as superior to them people are much more open to it they're much less defensive you create less resistance and you tap into the fragility a little bit less and and i think they're much more likely to just say okay yeah we'll do that and it also doesn't position you as speaking someone as someone with the authority to speak for that group if you're not a part of it. Mm. So basically that's the two things. Step one, you say, hey, can I share with you something that I just learned? And step two, I just learned that. And then the thing that you just, that you learned. What do you think about this? You know, I am probably not going to be implementing it anytime soon. Uh, I mean, there's elements of it I can implement, but just... I don't know, man. The stuff that I am qualified to speak on is very like at this point in my life, I don't have a lot of patience for people who don't know. And in my opinion, you get to not know once. Very often my experience when I take the time to tell somebody that they've stepped out of line, their immediate response is to double down on their ignorance. Um, I can appreciate it as a strategic method of getting people to get on board but for someone like me at this point it doesn't like I, I can do that as an ally like that's something I can do but as a as a black person speaking about black issues I'm kind of spent and uh, oh yeah yeah this doesn't apply for issues about yourself because it, yeah, it would, and I it remember would you be really that. funny for me to say I just learned that this exactly, is offensive exactly. to my people right yeah that's not not 
and and, and you so did add that caveat. Con- you did add that caveat. Yeah. I do want to like acknowledge that. I'm just letting you know that this works for me as an ally. Like I can definitely, and I've seen myself doing a semblance of this when people have uh, inquired about my affirming stance when it comes to the LGBTQ community and the LDS church. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I think we're beefing with somebody on Instagram from Mormon Stories over this very issue. And I'm, and I think you'd be proud to know I'm very patient about it. Um, but like, I can afford to be, and I should afford to be, since I'm just an ally in that community, and that is my responsibility as an ally, is to uh, speak up in ways that do not... Um, that do not necessarily imply some kind of superiority to those people just because I know something that they don't. So uh, I, I like that idea for strategic allyship. I can certainly start implementing it today um, for for those communities. Yeah, and I'm not saying that this is a you know a hammer that that everything is a nail. This is just one tool that in certain circumstances, like if you're in a group and they're about to you know and you want to redirect the whole group and there's not a lot of time for conversation, but you just want to name something. It's a, it's a way of making it accessible to people that that can be quite strategic. And so we'll see what, see what happens with people use this. Yeah. I don't, I haven't been following this Instagram thing, so you'll have to send me a link and I'll, I'll, fill you I'll, in. Yeah. I'll see what this is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's great stuff. I like that. I like this segment idea. Hopefully we can do a couple of more of these. Um, but on that note, I see where we are at time, and I should probably begin editing this down immediately. Um, yeah, I have to go too. Dope. Well, Derek, thanks for your time. I hope man. to thanks see all of you in. next week. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for listening and share this yes, with others. Yes, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Take care, guys. Okay, bye, everyone. <laughs>